I'm talking like I normally do. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMind. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight in your factories, check out RubyMind by going to jetbrains.com slash ruby. This episode is sponsored by CodeClimate. CodeClimate automated code reviews ensure that your projects stay on track. Fix and find quality and security issues in your Ruby code sooner. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash CodeClimate. Hi. 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 So, so we so we may not need an introduction, but I'm giving you one anyway. Uh, so so we're the Ruby Rogues. I'm Josh. This is Avdi. Hello. David. Chuck. Katrina. And James. Hi, everyone. And uh, we're almost ready to get started here for slides. Uh, so, but I'm not going to wait for them because the the intro here doesn't really need them. Somebody not not know what the Ruby Rogues are. Hey, who listens to us? They are on our show right now. That's great. How many people here are on the Parlay email list? That's really cool. So I'm going to make the announcement now rather than later. Um, one of the things that we've been working on for a little bit is you know we had we had Jeff Atwood on the show a couple weeks ago, a month or two ago, something like that, and we ta- we talked about Discourse, which is this really cool open source project they're doing to reinvent uh, uh, like forum groups. Built on Rails. Built on Rails with Ember as the front end. And uh, we're going to be setting, moving the Rogues Parlay list from a Google group email list to a discourse forum. So we'll have much more flexibility in how to manage conversations. We can have plenty of off-topic stuff. There will be a place for recruiters to send their spam. So uh, it'll all be wonderful. Okay, so we have slides up now. So now I'll talk about what we're talking about today. Um, I'm just going to do a quick intro, then we're all going to each take three minutes and tell you our position, and then we'll have a little fun debate, and you can ask us questions too. And the topic today is best practices. So many of you may have heard of this book, Small Talk Best Practice Patterns. We had Kent on the show quite a while ago now and talked about this book. And everybody says, we really need a Ruby version of this book. So... We're writing one. Uh, yeah. Yay! <laughs> uh, so uh, we're going to be working with Pearson. They do the professional Ruby series. Uh, you know, the, the books with the red covers. I'm sure you've seen all, a lot of them. And uh, so tomorrow we're going to be going down to the uh, south of the river here in Austin and spending a few days in a house and having a retreat and starting the book. So sometime next year uh, you'll be able to buy this book. And now we're going to tell you why you should care about best practice patterns or best practices. And so, James, can you start us? Yes, but we have to switch slide decks because <laughs> there's a lot of us. By the way, how do you like the hats? <laughs> or headwear in general? That's not the right question. Who wins best hat? Okay, that will come at the end. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. So... <laughs> I, but by the way, I, I couldn't bring myself to wear a hat. I spent too much money on this hair. <laughs> 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 sure. 
Okay, so uh, if you listen to Ruby Rogues at all, you know I'm the super talkative one, which is why they made me put in this slide. So I want to show you my one point. Here it is. <laughs> if you can't see that, it's a period right in the middle. Okay, so that's it, and thank you. Ah, no, I'm just kidding. It does tell you a lot about my personality, though, that they give me a really tight time limit, and I would still burn three slides on a joke. <laughs> So I'm going to tell you why you should care about best practices. To use an example, this is uh, a discussion I had online recently with several people in the gist and some comments. Uh, these are the different ways you can use struct if you want to add custom methods. Uh, a lot of times people use the top form where they just inherit from what struct returns and put the methods in there. But you can also choose to pass a block to struct and uh, use that. I like the latter one, but that's not the point. So try not to get hung up on that as we talk about this. One of the reasons I do prefer the latter one is that if you use the latter one, then a struct with custom methods looks similar to a struct without custom methods, right? And there's this concept that Josh talks about a lot, about code malleability, where it's easy to transform code. So in this case, you can just add or remove the block to turn it into the opposite one, right? And the other uh, a complaint I have against the inheritance one is that it actually uses two classes, the one that gets returned from struct and then the one that you uh, inherited uh, that from. Uh, this can cause problems if you're using any kind of code reloading, uh, because if this code gets executed a second time, you'll get a different parent class, and then Ruby will complain that the parent classes don't match, and you get an error. But my way's not all roses. Aaron Patterson pointed out that if you do use the class inheritance one, then you have access to super. You can write methods like you always do, because they're at a higher level in the class hierarchy, so you're fine to super up to them or include some mix in that supers up to them. Whereas if you use my way, you need to use this alternate syntax to access the hash version of it. Um, and then Ruby 2 kind of solves the uh, mix in problem since we can just prepend it instead of include it. But the point isn't that I'm trying to tell you the right way you should code your structs. I'm just saying that this is interesting, right? There's a lot of interesting concepts around this, like code malleability and stuff like that. And by having these discussions, we learn from each other and get to a better style of programming. And to me, that's the point. That's all I have. Yeah. I'd like to talk about naming things. I started a project recently. Uh, Sandy mentioned it. It's called exorcism.org. <laughs> and uh, one of the first exercises there, the first exercise there, is a simple class named Bob. Bob is a lackadaisical teenager, and he has a very limited set of responses. One of them is, if you shout at him in all caps, he responds, whoa, chill out. And to everything else, he responds, whatever. So... The simplest, ap absolutely simplest form of this usually looks something like this. You get a string, you check whether or not uh, the upcase version of that string is the same as the string, and if so, it's, whoa, chill out. And otherwise, it's whatever. I found that some people suggest that you should name this piece of logic. The s equal blah, blah, blah is implementation details. We can hide it. And if we go back to 
the the readme it says that if if the string is all caps then do the one thing so some people then say is it all caps uh, and name that concept and i'd like to say that that is still an implementation detail what we're actually talking about here is is someone shouting and so shouting is interesting in this context because it's telling the story of bob and his interlocutor however that's pronounced so I'd rather see this thing called shouting. There's more here. This shouting right now, we're passing the message into shouting. Bob is determining whether he's shouting or not. We can move this. We can say, no, shouting is a phrase, and we can check if the phrase is shouted. And this leaves the, the logic of determining what is shouting, what is eventually then yelling or whatever, to the phrase itself. There's more. Uh, S is very, very generic, and in this context, we're actually talking about drivel. It's a conversation. It's meaningless. And using, choosing the name drivel will tell the reader that this is mean, uh, meaningless. This is drivel. This isn't a serious conversation. So this is a lot more complex than what we started out with, but there are names here that tell us the story of Bob and his uh, and the person he's talking to, and that's all I've got. All right. Before I get going, um, I just want to give a quick shout out to Mandy. She's over there. Yeah. Um, she edits all of our shows. She writes our show notes. She, she she really does a lot for the show and uh, a lot for me personally. In fact. Before I came down, my wife told me that I had to tell her that she's not going anywhere because my wife appreciates the time that she saves me. So anyway, I just, I just want to give credit where it's due. So let, let's talk for a minute here about best practices. One of the issues that I have a lot with uh, some of the best practice discussions out there uh, are the discussions where somebody says you should always do this. You should always do that. And there's, there's always a situation where... Uh, I, I just use that word. Uh, there's usually a situation with most of these best practices where there's a trade-off. Now, the interesting thing, if you listen to Katrina's talk um, earlier, was that she talked about the Dreyfus model. And she talked about how with beginners, with novices, advanced beginners, a, a lot of times they, they just kind of follow the rules. Okay, So there are, there are things that they do, and they do it because somebody told them to, and they don't completely understand those trade-offs. And, and I think it's an important thing to consider with best practices because they don't have the information to make the de determination of what's the best practice given a certain context. So under those uh, circumstances, a list of best practices or a set of rules um, pulled together into a style guide can be really helpful for beginners. And so um, that's a lot of, uh, I think, what the book is about when we start putting together a list of best practices. It'll help people, you know, start the conversation if they have the experience to have that. But for beginners, it tells them where to start and how to avoid some of the issues that they don't even know they're going to have. So I started looking at the style guide for um, for GitHub. GitHub has a style guide up for Ruby, and uh, I just picked a few examples that I like uh, for various reasons. Now, this example, um, you can see that the difference is just if condition then versus if condition and then the body. And, and this isn't a major thing, but if you've listened to 
I, I keep talking about Katrina, but she gave a talk a while ago about refactoring, and she mentioned code junk. And in this case, the then doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't add anything to the conversation. It's just clutter. And so some of the best practices are simply about readability, about focusing on what's important. And you're probably going to hear a lot of that um, as you ask questions and read the book and talk to us and hear us talk about these things on the show. Some other uh, ideas out there, um, such as, and, and I'm not going to go into the why on a lot of these, but um, doing flow control with exceptions. How many of you have, have done something like uh, the top example where you've rescued some exception, really what it was was a, a fancy else. So um, I think we've all made that mistake. I've done it. Other people have done it. Um, the, the other one that's my favorite is where you do a rescue and then return nil. Um, so you have rescue nil at the end of the line. Um, and then that's flow control because you're, uh, you're saying that you don't care that something bad happened. But uh, you know, it, it, so it, it'll save them this, these troubles. And if you give them a style guide like this, then they won't even make this mistake. They'll just do it that way because you told them to. And then as they move ahead, then they can start to build context around why they should or shouldn't do something. The single quote, double quote. How many of you have had that debate? That's one of my favorites. It was on parlay. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was on parlay. Um, you can go look at the benchmarks. It doesn't make any difference. But uh, anyway, so you know, GitHub's recommendation is to use double quotes because there's no penalty for using double quotes for a string. And uh, those are all of my examples. But the whole idea is is that you can avoid some of these issues. You can make sure people are doing the right things at least to start with by giving them a, a set of rules to follow. And then as they gain experience, as they move up that Dreyfus scale, then they can start to use that experience and knowledge to actually make their own best practices and, and choose the things that they should be doing. And uh, that's, that's all I have. So I stressed over this talk and uh, ended up throwing everything out last night because I had this huge epiphany that I, oh, that's not good. Okay, we're not doing it with slides because the disk appears to have corrupted them. Awesome. All right, let's punt. So uh, I have three code examples, and I have three minutes to give them, and I was joking about how uh, they needed to be so simple that I could give them without needing slides if I want to do this in three minutes. So all right, broken slide deck. Rock. Okay, so um, I wanted to do, I wanted to talk about patterns and why of patterns and when you should and wherefore. And what I realized was I wanted to talk about cognitive load, which is the amount of crap you have to keep in your head when you're trying to debug code and work and understand stuff. And then I realized no, late last night, no, what I want to do is just come up here for three minutes and just beg you to please write readable code. <laughs> if, right? So uh, the first example I have is, is an array, one, one, two, three, dot inject colon plus, right? This is Ruby's method. If you've got a functional programming background, this is, this is uh, reduce, or if you're from Haskell, this is fold. And um, if you're from Ruby, this is going to add up all these things by injecting the plus thing. Well, from a functional standpoint and talking about primitives, that's great. But from an OO standpoint, what I really want to do is ask this array, please, Mr. Array. I love that phrase from Sandy. Please, Mr. Array, what is the sum of your elements? Uh, so I want to say array.sum. And so I will write that in code. And the problem is that... Um, it, well, the great thing is if you're new to Ruby, you'll look at 123.sum and go, hey, that should be 6. And if you're 
The problem is if you're advanced at Ruby, you'll go, wait a minute, there is no sum method on array. Where, how do I debug this? And uh, you can get into a big argument about whether this is valid. And this is a monkey patch. I've, I've inserted the sum method into array. Guess what? It's self.inject plus. If you work with me, you know that you you know that you can go to live patches array, actually in this case enumerable, in.rb, and that's where you're going to find the in patch. But if you don't know this, you might go to enumerable. So cognitive load. Where do we make things more readable? And so it's a discussion. It's, and what I'm saying is it's a trade-off. Um, it's always a trade-off. How about that? Um, anyway. <laughs> Um, except for when it's not. Um, the second example that I, I had was I, I had I wrote this uh, quick little bit of code. Uh, Send me this sandwich, and it was like you know if sandwich has bread, do this thing. If sandwich has mayo, do this thing. If vending machine includes sandwich, wait a minute. I was having a lovely conversation with the sandwich, and now I have to talk to the vending machine. So there's another monkey patch that I love to write, which is object.in question mark collection, and it just says collection.include me. Self, right? And again, an entry-level Rubius will read through this and go sandwich.invending machine. That's really clear. It makes total sense. But boy, howdy, if you don't know what it does and you're trying to debug it and you try to go to rubylang or rubydoc.org, you're not going to find this method. So there's cognitive load. And you have to have this discussion with your teammates. You have to kind of know, you know where this stuff is coming from for this to work. This is great that I don't have a slide for this. Um, the last example, you want to make intention revealing names, but this can go horribly, horribly wrong. And one method, we had users and groups. Groups have users to send a message to people that are in your groups. Uh, it's You can imagine the code, user.group.members, map, flatten, unique, right? Uh, so I had a coworker who wrote the method, user.all users in groups this user is a member of. Uh, and I just want to point out that if your method name has a dependent clause, you are revealing your intent to violate the law of Demeter. Uh, so it is re intention revealing. Um, or as Josh said, it's self-incriminating. Um, everything's a trade-off. I argued that this should be renamed to peers. I lost the argument. User.peers lost because that was not a domain name in our project. And our designers were like, what are peers? And so it actually would have increased cognitive load across everything. So. Everything is always a trade-off. Think about that trade-off. Please, please, please write readable code. Okay. Hi. So, best practices. We've been talking about style as a big part of that, and uh, and code style. And in any conversation about code style, somebody always plays the aesthetics card, right? And People, you know, the aesthetics. So what are aesthetics? Okay, so aesthetics are uh, something, it's a sense of beauty or the appreciation of beauty. And the, <laughs> so, it, but it's not just something that's a sense of something. It's also a set of principles that underlie and guide either the work of an artist or an artistic movement, or in our case, the style of code. But what that doesn't mean is that you look at code and you say, oh, it just looks better. Because you know now you're comparing a set of principles to evaluate something with your gut feel. And a gut feel that develops over years or decades of experience, you can you know, someone who's that experience can look at something and know intuitively, oh, that's bad code or that's good code because they have all this experience to draw on. But for someone who doesn't have that kind of experience, a gut feel is often misleading. And 
you know, it can be it can be something that you've transferred from experience in another language that works somewhat differently, or uh, it could just be the result of inexperience or even lazy thinking. So I think that when somebody plays the aesthetics card and says, I think that code just looks better, I like the way it looks, it's more pleasing to me, it's more beautiful, but they can't back that up with an actual rational evidence-based justification for why it's better, then I think that that's a cop-out. I think that, that that's an excuse for not really doing your homework to understand why your code is doing what it's doing and why you're writing it that way. So let's talk about, uh, let's get concrete a bit. Um, in, Rub in Ruby on Rails, the core team has a style preference to prefer symbols to strings. So in any case, in almost all cases in the API where, you know, where it's, or, or, well, a huge set of cases, you can use symbols and strings interchangeably because they just send 2s to whatever you pass in, and a symbol works just as well as a string. And that can be really convenient in places. So you know, I, I can see there might be an argument for, okay, we have a string, a symbol looks a little better to some people, maybe. You know, it's one fewer character, it stands out a little bit in a different way. But that can go wrong. So here's a migration from Rails, and this is the standard way that the Rails core team prefers migrations to be written. The generators work that way. Uh, the schema.dump schema task, unfortunately, still uses strings, so it's not consistent, and that got me in trouble in a bit of an argument recently. But this is how I prefer it with strings. And I prefer it this way because you can actually tell that the strings have a different role than the symbols. The symbols are the names of options that you pass to the, to the type methods, whereas the strings are the names of the of the things. And those strings don't actually mean anything to the Ruby code. All they are is something that you pass to the SQL DD, you know, DDL and tells the database what to name the column. You never actually care how that thing is spelled within the Ruby code. So it so it's okay, great. You know, I don't have to compare these things. The identity is not that important. It's just a pass-through. So I actually have some rational reasoning behind that. There's also places where that can get, that style of not distinguishing between symbols and strings can get you in trouble. So everybody, any Rails programmers here know what this does? How about this? If you've been using Rails for a while, you've been trained to think that symbols and strings are interchangeable. But when you use a symbol, it's, t it's telling Rails, oh, call that method on me, send that message to me, <laughs> and then the result of that method is what's used as the layout name. So. This is, a, this is an instance where the style can actually get you in trouble because it's not well reasoned out. That's all I got. Thank you. Hello. If, uh, if you have followed my blog at all, uh, you probably know that I get a kick out of clever solutions for things. Um, it's kind of a hobby of mine, finding clever things to do with Ruby. So I thought that uh, my little addition to this would be talking about when it's not such a good idea to be clever. Quick pop quiz. This, uh, this code here uses standard libraries only. What does the true argument mean to transaction? So if, you, if, if you're like me and you use pstore all the time, uh, you know that true there means read only. Uh, except actually, that's not, I, I'm lying. Every single time I use that method, I have to look it up. <laughs> pop quiz. Pop quiz number two. Uh, here's something similar. In this case, what does the false pass to instance methods mean? In this case, it means 
uh, don't include the superclass methods. Again, I have to look it up every single time. Everybody has. So uh, clearly, this is this is a, a style problem because those booleans uh, are meaningless to the reader. There's a solution to this. There's an approach to this that I've seen suggested by a number of people, including some of my fellow panelists, uh, which says, which uh, it's 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 this interesting solution that says, well, symbols are truthy, right? So rather than passing a literal true to that method, we could just pass uh, a symbol to stand in for that true value. And we could give that symbol a nice readable name like read only. Clever, right? This is a really clever solution. Um, but unfortunately, there are some drawbacks to this approach. First of all, if I didn't know anything about PStore and I came to this code to, for the first time, I might look at that and I would think, oh, that's interesting. That must read only must be a, a special flag to that method. That you know that method understands a read only flag. So I might want to know more about that uh, to find out what else I could pass in there. And I make, might go searching through the documents or through the code for that string you know colon read only, and I'd come to a dead end <laughs> because it's actually not part of the API. Uh, I could just as well have passed chunky bacon in there, and it would have it would have worked the same way. Uh, so it's it's suggesting an API that actually isn't there. Another little problem with it, at least in my opinion, is when we get to the negative case. So here's that instance methods where where we want to pass false in, and in this case, there's no false version of a a symbol. And so to sort of simulate that, we have to negate a symbol. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a fan of of this uh, dollar colon business or not. Uh, bang colon business. It's, it's just not that readable to me. So there are some, some drawbacks to this clever solution. Uh, so I want to um, suggest to you that, that, uh, that the cleverest solution, not always the best solution, uh, and I want to show you an alternative here. Now, this is very technical code, so I'm going to walk you through it one line at a time. Um, on the first line, I, uh, I assign a variable with a, a, a meaningful name called read-only, and I assign it the value true. And then on the next line, I pass that variable in. Wait, can we go through that again? Yeah. Did you, if, you didn't, if, if you didn't get that, I can go through it again. Uh, so uh, here's, here it is, the, the same technique, in case you didn't catch that, applied to the other method call. Uh, this time I assigned the false value to a variable with a meaningful name, and then I pass that variable in as the argument. So, um, okay, it's an extra line of code, but uh, I feel like this is probably a better solution, even though it isn't as clever. Now, we can take this a little bit further, because it, you, we can actually uh, do an inline assignment within that method call, so we're actually assigning the variable and, uh, and then using the value right there inside the method call. But uh, I think you know what I'm going to say next. <laughs> Don't get clever. Uh, I've actually watched programmers look at code like this or write code like this. Uh, the thing is, this looks like a, kind of like a keyword argument. And I've watched programmers look at this and think that they were using keyword arguments, even in versions of Ruby that didn't have keyword arguments. Um, you know, they were new to the language. And they, so they had false expectations about the code they were writing, and it would, was working by accident. And then when they tried to change it, um, it didn't behave the way they expected. So yeah, don't get clever. Sometimes the simplest solution is the best solution. Can we talk about the actual problem there? If you define a method that takes one true-false flag, 
We will send David Brady to your house. Okay, I will sing Christmas carols at you. <laughs> Actually, I don't know why you didn't reopen the read-only, uh, or not the read-only, the include super symbol, and have it return nil to be true. <laughs> so you could just say include read-only, and it would be false. It would be falsy. <laughs> you, you cannot make, make uh, arbitrary objects falsy in Ruby. Can't be done. <sighs> okay. Can't be done. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, that, that, cool. By the way, uh, quick note: that whole problem is caused by by APIs where a keyword argument would have been better. But uh, yes. you know, okay. So we're going to take some questions because we have lots of people here. So we want to talk to you. Question time. Bring them on. Good ones. Yes. In many ways, it sounds like the book that you're planning to write. Or th there's some there's some overlap in the conceptualization of the book that you're talking about writing, or at least at the surface, there seems. And a book like Eloquent Ruby or or other books that that you know kind of intend to sort of teach beginners uh, the 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 usual patterns. How, how's your book going to be different? We actually uh, figured maybe we could just take Confident Ruby, change the name, and put all our names at the bottom. <laughs> I was honestly hoping for a cage match with Russ because I think I could take him. <laughs> Josh describes this best. I, I, actually, I actually have a serious answer to this. And, and that's that uh, there's the things that you, that you read and, and learn when you're leveling up to master the language. And those kind of things change as you get better. Right, the the kind of things that you that you do as your as your when you're a beginner, you start doing different things as you become more proficient. The things that in the, in Kent Beck's book, Small Type Best Practice Patterns, those are things that you do throughout your whole career, and they're things that you do multiple times a day. Whenever you're working on code, when, when I work on code, I, I use an intention revealing message names, intention revealing variables. I will extract method objects as a refactoring technique. Those patterns in Kent's book are, you know, in my, in my opinion, they're eternal. It's like I will use them throughout my entire career of object-oriented programming. And you know, Russ's book is a good book. I like it. And but I think it has a limited shelf life in terms of utility to me as a developer. If it's more for like a larger shelf life and more career-driven approach, why would a Ruby-specific version help if there's already small talk best practices? That's a really good question, actually. So I learned Smalltalk to read Smalltalk best practice patterns. Right? Has anybody else done that? Seriously? Learn Smalltalk to read that one book? <laughs> right? Um, so, but go ahead. Yeah, oh yeah, it was. I, I learned a lot and that was cool. But it would be even cooler to have one in Ruby, not just because it saves you learning the other language, but it also gives us an opportunity to address Rubyisms, right? Ruby is not small talk. It's close in some ways, you know, and then different in other ways. Like, one of the things we've been looking at as we take the table of contents and move it over, Ruby needs an entire section on its scripting capabilities, which Smalltime doesn't even have, right? It's, it doesn't work like that. So uh, it gives us an opportunity to address things that are specific to us. So uh, my question is actually a very good follow-up to uh, what you just said about having sections in the book to address things that are unique to Ruby. Um, I think uh, you have a really great idea in bringing over that book to an audience for whom um, small talk isn't really an option that they have the time to learn to go through the other. Um, I'm in that group where I wanted to read it, but I did not have time to pick up on the language to do so. 
I think it'd be great if in the new version of the book you're working on, you could include sections on using things like um, metaprogramming in dynamic languages and scripting in dynamic languages. And as you said, you're trying to make it something that's not just, you know, here's what I need to do as a Ruby developer, but here's career things. I think we're seeing a lot of languages pick up on a lot of these features. And I think, you know, using Ruby's examples, you know, whether things work in every language or not, um, I think it'd be great to see examples of doing things like that that are practices that might not really have existed in that form back when the original book was written. I guess it's not a question, that's a comment, but what do you think about that idea? There we go. <laughs> yeah, we, we do have a section in the outline on metaprogramming. Right. So we agree. <laughs> so um, uh, I, I think I'd like to kind of point the conversation more towards just the general area of best practices, best practice patterns, uh, rather than like the book that we're going to write, because we can all you know discuss on Parley and stuff like that. Uh, yes, uh, there's a case where um, you might have a conflict between your two different ideas, and uh, the, the gentleman with the red hat, the cable guy. The cable. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure if I feel better or worse about myself now. <laughs> it's never getting old. Nobody <laughs> knows what I really bring to the show. <laughs> um, and, and you know, like, like, I think you're pointing. <laughs> what was my question? <laughs> so. Um, it's official. This is an episode now. He brings up the point, you know, that there's probably never ever any good answer. But um, your statement was with single quotes versus double quotes, and then I think some of the panelists following that were the point was is to write code to show your intent, and. Uh, I, I like to, I've been following the theme lately to using single quotes when I don't do any interpolation. So it's clear in my writing that it's not going to be interpolated. And it can't be interpolated. Uh, so how does that bounce off of you? So th there's a trade-off, again. You know, th there is that intention, you know, the string can't be interpolated. However, if things change down the road and I do need to interpolate, it's easier just to refactor something that already has double quotes. I just add it in. And granted, it's not a huge cost to change. But at the same time, there is still a little bit of trade-off. The other thing that's interesting about style guides like the one that I was looking through is that it keeps things consistent. And so if I'm looking for strings or if I am identifying strings, I can identify them by the double quote and not have to worry about the single quote case. And, and so there, you know, there are the trade-offs, and it really just depends on what's important to you. So in your specific example, you say that using a single-quoted string reveals your intent better, which I agree, it does. The trade-off is you've sacrificed some code malleability, right? If I need to use interpolation, now I have to stop and switch the string to double quotes so that then I can include the interpolation. There are cases where you know that won't happen. Right? You're pretty darn sure it's not going right. to uh, get interpolated, so it may make sense to make that trade-off. So if you're asking me, like, how would I handle that case, first, I think it's wrong to say always use double quotes. I 
think it's better to say, usually use double quotes because. And then if you give the reasoning, then you can go through the reasoning, and when you reach the point where because doesn't apply, you know that. And, and I agree, you know, that uh, I've done a lot of single quoting and have gone back to double quotes on the same material. So, uh. so um, this is not about the book, but it's going to sound a little bit like it, I think. All right, so you guys, you're not all the same person. So I suspect that you're going to have differences of opinion. I hope so. And I suspect that you've already had discussions about how to resolve differences of opinion for style guides. And I'm interested in how you can take that discussion, whatever process you're already thinking about for resolving the differences, and talk about how other people can apply them back in their offices for the teams that they work on to resolve their style differences. We'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> first, I think the first thing is to, to say that we know we have different opinions because we get into it all the time about it. The, the interesting thing is to discuss the reasoning behind it. This is what Josh was talking about. It's not just a gut feeling. We have our reasons. Usually, I seed in this group. Avdi will always have like a really good reason that I hadn't thought about, and I'll seed my, uh, like, I'll just change my mind, you know? And you can do that, which is kind of cool, right? We haven't had, like, discussed the strategy. I mean, maybe it's rock, paper, scissors. I don't know. Rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock. Of course. <laughs> Naturally. I like your strategy. Opti's always right. Works for me. Did you notice that Avdi's slides could have also been titled Why Josh and James are Stupid? <laughs> so I, I want to I just add something to that, and that is that we, we kind of alluded to it, but we didn't talk deeply about it, but there is also the conversation around context. So sometimes a best practice isn't a global thing. It doesn't always apply. And so in some cases, we'll disagree because we have a different experience due to a different context. And so it's possible that we'll have conflicting best practices, and they're not conflicting simply because under these circumstances, you probably want to do A, and others you want to do B. And so there's always a constructive discussion over when it applies, how it applies, and you know, what our experience is. But, but everybody here is really good about um, explaining why and providing code samples and things like that. So the discussions will be very well reasoned, and, and I'm really excited about having those conversations. So I, I think it's actually a feature, not a bug. If uh, half of us disagree, then is that really a good best practice? You know what I mean? If we, if we lock horns over it and we can't bring the, the others around, and if we can, then more's the better, right? If we made a good argument, like Avdi often does, and, and sways the rest of us, you know, then, uh, great. If, if not, then maybe that's not a best practice, or at the very least, it's a signal that we need to show it both ways and explain the trade-off, right? Yeah, and the explanation, yeah, you have to have the because. It's not do this, it's do this because. The book would be real short without the explanations, I think. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so so I, I want to say real quick that the, that the phrase best practices is, is a term of art in many professions. And if you follow best practices, if you're a lawyer or a doctor or an electrical engineer or, or a plumber, that it, you, know, you do these things, then... 
it, it's to some extent it shields you from liability. You say, I did the thing that everybody does and everybody accepts, expects or accepts as the proper thing to do. And then if somebody sues you for malpractice, you say, but I was just doing the thing that my entire industry says we should be doing. So that, that's from, you know, that perspective. So, you know, we have a, I think it's harder to come up with that baseline in what we do in engineering because the problems we solve appear to be much more varied. So the, the whole point of best practice is I think it's a, it's potentially a misnomer. We're going with the name because there's some tradition there, but it's not, yeah, because it's a best practice doesn't mean it's the only practice. That's great. Yeah, I was talking to somebody yesterday. Uh, forgive me, I can't remember who. I, I believe it was one of the conference uh, volunteers or organizers about the book, and he he asked me, "Are you going to just take all six of your voices and just blend it into one homogenous thing? Because if you do, please God, I don't ever want to read that book." <laughs> and and I, yeah, there, there's going to be a time when. Five of us stand against Josh, and Josh kicks our butt, right? And then there ends up, here's the best practice, here's why we think it is, and then there's a crazy little sidebar, you know, from Josh that's in his voice of, you know, the lone, the lone, you know, pariah crying in the wilderness. Actually, it's probably going to be me in the sidebar most of the time. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, if we create, if we can create a book with six different voices in it and still have a coherent narrative, I think we win everything. We win all the things. Are you going to publish the discourse in GitHub so we can fork early and often on that discourse? Or what's the mechanisms? Well, discourse is an open source project, so you can already uh, fork and contribute to it. So, so the, the, the discourse application is open source. Uh, the content is going to be private because it's, you know, we, have a, we have the rogues parlay list. It's a, a, are you familiar with the rogues parlay list? Okay, so, so for those of you not familiar, we... Uh, last year, we set up an email list so that listeners of the show had a had a way to to support the show production. So you can pay anywhere from ten dollars a year to what? How much? What's the top rate? Fifty bucks a month. <laughs> it, you know, if you're, and we've had a few people do that. And then we made your name on the show. And because uh, you're cool, love you dearly. Yeah. <laughs> It, so it, it's a private email list. It's very high signal-to-noise ratio, a lot of good content. Uh, all of the guests who come on the show get instant membership to the list, and many of them come on the, on the list and talk with us from Martin Fowler to Kent Beck. To yeah, so literally, uh, recently, we did some episode, and Martin Fowler chimed in about all the things we got wrong, which was awesome, right? <laughs> it's great. Uh, you, you can't beat Parlay. I have no idea how it happened, but we actually own, like, the best Ruby on Rails mailing list. Or, not Ruby on Rails, Ruby mailing list. Well, Rails, too. Yeah, it does have some Rails. So, I kind of want to touch on what Abdi said about not being clever, and kind of dovetails off of what Steve Klabnik presented yesterday about using irresponsible Ruby to still be creative. And I found myself in situations where I'm correcting, you know, people who are junior to Ruby, maybe they're experienced developers, and I'm like, that's not the right way to do it, because they show me something that they're excited about and they think it's cool, right? And I just wanted to ask you guys, like, how do you get people to use a best practice without squashing their spirit in the process? All right, so the best, the, the best way to avoid being clever is to be clever a lot. Because um, <laughs> you've got to get it out of your system. Um, if, you, if, if, if you're anything like me and you enjoy that kind of thing, uh, which, you know, hopefully a lot of you are. I mean, that's like a lot of, like, why we get into this. Awesome hacks, right? And, you know, I mean, Steve kind of nailed it. He said, but don't do it at work. Or I will quit, right? Or I will quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you know, you, you've gotta you've gotta have time and opportunities to to do irresponsible coding, and you know, you gotta make time after hours. You should honestly, you should. I, I would hope that you know that you have a enlightened enough workplace that you can you know have some hack nights or something where you just do fun stuff. You know, I've definitely batted around crazy, crazy code in offices over the years. You know, and and uh, yeah, what what I what I would hate to see is a culture of like somebody. Somebody says, "Hey, check this out," and then, like the you know lead developer says, "That's the worst thing I've ever seen. I don't ever want to see anything like that again." You know, it's now you got to celebrate these hacks, but you also have to recognize that you know if you're not sure what the implications are of something clever, then maybe it's not time to put it into production yet. But by all means, you know, uh, foist it on a, on an unsuspecting public and on GitHub and and uh, watch what other people do with it. One thing I want to add to that, it, and I'm just basically going to say the same thing in a different way, but it's it's a different way of thinking about it, and that is that best practices usually revolve around some commonly solvable case. And if you're out there writing irresponsible code like what Steve was talking about the other day, you're probably going to transcend a lot of best practices by doing so. You know, the, the idea, the, the crazy thing that you're doing, there's probably not a best case, best practice way to do it. And so, you know, you, you follow the ones that are, you know, sort of idiomatic Ruby or, you know, what will help make exploring the, the idea easier. But at the same time, you know, you're probably going to go beyond what we're talking about with how to solve a particular problem if that's the whole point of your irresponsible code. Steve did also cover very well that there are two different modes of thinking, right? And one mode has a time and a place, and the other mode has a time and a place, right? And when he engaged in that mode, he suspended the normal rules, you know? Don't do test unit, right? Don't unit test, right? It changed the rules. And one of the things that I said in the panel we did at uh, RailsConf last year, uh, I, can't, I don't have the quote in front of me right now, so I'll paraphrase it, but um, it, it was Baudelaire said something about uh, be conservative, uh, in your daily life, so that you can, or so that you can be daring in the things that are important to you. So, if you have a foundation of best practices that you follow, then you have a stable thing that you that you can rely on and have some confidence that that's not going to be the thing that's messing you up. And then, when you when you want to take risks and do irresponsible things or explore, then you know that you know that's going to be the thing that you have to th worry about breaking, not everything else in your system. Thank you, everyone. The Lone Review Foundation wants to extend our sincere gratitude for the rocks coming here and uh, and having a panel. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We, we are really grateful for the opportunity. We don't get to do this very often. Thank you. Yeah, a big hand for the Lone Star Ruby Foundation. Yeah. Thank you.